Hi, I'm David Freudberg. We here at Humankind are trying to strike a balance to make our public radio programs available to you and also to make sure we're able to pay our production costs from office rent to staff time to studio and distribution expenses. The grants we receive from funders you hear named on our programs don't fully cover our operating costs. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep our program and this podcast going. Please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of our homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and a special grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. We can have an injury to our dignity, it can be trampled upon, it can be wounded, but it can't be taken away from us, it can't be stripped out of us. It's the inner world, it's the substance of our inner world. The importance in a conflict of honoring your opponent's dignity and of maintaining your own. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. We've all seen how adversaries, whether on the military battlefield or in an election campaign or even in a family dispute, sometimes try to degrade each other. It's an all-too-common tactic and it trivializes a fundamental truth, that all people have an essential value and are entitled to be treated with common decency. And Donna Hicks, a conflict mediator, sometimes brought in to stimulate dialogue in world hotspots, has noticed the deep wounds people carry when their human dignity is not respected. Because I'm a psychologist, I tend to listen for what isn't being spoken at the tables when we were doing um, dialogues between parties. And honestly, it didn't matter where it was, whether it was Israel-Palestine or uh, a dialogue in Sri Lanka or a dialogue in in Colombia. I observe the same thing, and that is that when... The parties were talking about all of the objective issues, all the political issues that needed to be resolved and that needed to have, you know, some kind of a compromise in order to get passed and to have a settlement over. Such as? Oh, so, for example, if we were in Israel, uh, we would be talking about borders. We would be talking about the refugees and what's going to happen to all the people who were displaced in 1948. What are we going to do about them? Where are we going to put the capital of the country? And I I call those the objective political issues. But at the same time, I would also see something that was happening that what I call was a conversation that took place under the table. Kind of the unspoken conversation. The unspoken conversation. And and it was this undercurrent that went, again, I think of it as, as under the table because it was, the they were these emotional reactions that were so powerful that they could hijack a really good set of ideas to settle some of these what I call political issues. And yet the minute one of these what I now call dignity violations took place and this emotional reaction would take over 
the, you know, the conversation, it, everything would stop. Donna Hicks is the author of Dignity. She's an associate at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard and also teaches at Columbia University. She says when someone tries to assault your sense of dignity, the experience is so primal it can trigger a series of automatic reactions, as if your body feels it is under threat of physical violence. This can happen, Hicks says, even for people with a thick skin. It's not that you don't feel it, right? It's not that you don't, if you're one, one of these people who can just brush it off and say, well, you know, it's his problem. The fact is you still have a reaction in your body. The body still reacts, but the difference is in the way you interpret what that event means for you personally. So, and, and this, is, this is a lot of the work that I do with people when I do dignity coaching, is to get them to realize that when somebody violates your dignity, you're going to have a reaction, you're going to feel it. But the meaning that you make of it, you know, what you do with that is really dependent on how secure you are in your own sense of worthiness. This is a big, this is a lot of the work that, fo- that I focus on right here, is getting people to reinterpret, because the research is really clear that if you can interpret these sorts of events in a way that reframes it away from thinking, oh, if that person violated me, then I must be unworthy. That's the major flaw in the thinking that we want to get around. Or that, therefore, I must retaliate. Or, therefore, I must retaliate, right? But that takes a lot of work. Which is why these conflicts are so deeply entrenched, because the work is hard. But the alternative to doing the work is constant pain and crisis. So, unfortunately, life offers us those choices. with Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who served as the Anglican Bishop of South Africa and was winner in 1984 of the Nobel Peace Prize. I wonder what you may have observed in his manner and how he has interacted with people that gave him the evident qualities he has of a peacemaker. Well, I I would say that first and foremost, he has a very clear sense of his worthiness. He doesn't have doubts about his sense of value and worth. He's a very religious man, obviously, and he's, he is, you know, his connection to his, to, to his um, creator is, um, it's, it's, as, um, it's as strong as a, a bond that I, you know, I've ever seen in any religious person. So he's really clear about his, his own divinity and his own sense of worthiness and his own... And yet, at the so, same... So that makes him very solid. I, it, do, it seems, but th- there's another half of that equation. That's half of it. But the other part that I think is equally as moving to me is that he understands, that he has a sense of humility that prevents him from being narcissistic. You know, because a lot of people have it, think that they're worthy and grandiose and they're wonderful and they're kings and queens and all of that. A lot of people have that characteristic, but they don't have the humility that balances that sense of value and that sense of worth. So he, it's, it's, it's in that balance between knowing that he's no better than any of the rest of us and yet recognizing that he is a 
you know, a child of God. Can you give us an example of, of either of those halves? So we're filming these um, um, encounters between victims and perpetrators in the conflict in Northern Ireland. This was a few years ago. And what we did was we had, let's just say, for example, we had an IRA man who sat across the table from a British police officer whom he nearly killed, whom the IRA man nearly killed. And we were, we were facilitating this discussion between these two men in, in the hope that we'll, we could achieve some kind of healing and recognition and, and uh, a sense of reconciliation between, um, between these two men, but as they represent the two communities in Northern Ireland. And so at the end of, oh gosh, it must have been eight hours of taping of these conversations between these two men. At the end, they ended. They had a beautiful reconciliation, and it was really quite extraordinary. We were all moved. And so the archbishop closed the session, this day-long session, and he said, we are humbled by you. We are, we are so grateful to you that you, you know, made yourself vulnerable in this way and that you were able to you know, be here together in this most respectful way. And he said, we, you know, you are, we have you to thank. You were, you were magnificent here. And you made us all uh, bigger people by watching what you've, what you've done and how you've managed to re- reconnect here. I'd like to ask a little bit, if you're comfortable, about your own story, whether conflict has been a part of your personal life and if that's a reason you're drawn into this work. Without a doubt. The truth is I, was, uh, I had a difficult uh, upbringing. I experienced a lot of now what I call uh, witnessing of ways in which my parents were really quite um, disrespectful toward each other. They fought all the time. They were... You know, they were f- from two different classes. My mother was um, a Polish immigrant, and my father was from, uh, you know, an upper-class community here in the Northeast. And it was, um, it was just stunning for me as a child to witness and to experience the, the, uh, the horror of seeing one's parents, whom, you, you know, as a child, I loved them both, but yet to see how brutally they were treating one another and... You know, and oftentimes we'd get, my sisters and I would get caught in that crossfire as well. And one of the things that my father was um, also an alcoholic and a chronic gambler, and he would often, he would often um, show up on the side of the road uh, in the mornings as my school bus was passing by. And I remember one situation where this one little kid who was the class bully came up to me and he said, look, everybody, Donna's father's drunk. There he is again on the side of the road. And I was so humiliated by that. And so for many years in my life, I really felt like my identity was a, it was a shame-based identity. I was, a, I was embarrassed by who I was. Instead of, you know, feeling that sense of value and priceless and irreplaceable, I felt just the opposite. And, you know, I, I wasn't conscious of this until, actually, until I, until I started doing this work at the international level, I realized that that sense of shame and humiliation is so debilitating and it was for me personally, just as a you know human being growing up, and I thought, 
well, this, this is why I had this major insight while sitting at those tables. This is about their dignity. This is about their sense of, of worth and value. And really what they wanted to be saying at those tables were, how dare you treat me this way? You know, can't you see I'm a human being? How dare you? And so those roots were very deep in me. That, you know, that connection was quite clear. Was it hard for you to come from that feeling as a child of shame, of humiliation, to a place where uh, you're able to feel more whole and more comfortable in yourself? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I can say now, well, it was most of my adult life. It took most of my adult life to uh, get straight about my worthiness after years of therapy. And and if you think about that in terms of what happens at these uh, in these community-level conflicts, inter-ethnic conflicts and identity conflicts that I work on, you can understand. It's so much easier to understand how if they have endured historically so many, you know, continuous and chronic dignity violations from the other side. You, you can understand why this relationship is so hard to put back together again. But, David, this, this, this aspect doesn't get talked about in these formal negotiations, I promise you. They do not get talked about, and this is the, re- the reason and, and why... I'm sorry, I, what, why is it taboo? Well, first of all, we don't like to admit we've been wounded emotionally. There's a sense of weakness and vulnerability that we... Um, experience when we've had a violation to our dignity. And here's the other really sad part about it is that when we feel like our dignity is violation, it's such a shameful event, we don't even like to talk about it. It's too shameful to speak about being, feeling embarrassed or humiliated or shamed. So what happens? Have, Have you witnessed encounters between opposing parties where one side took the risk, became vulnerable enough to reveal a feeling that you have violated my dignity or your group or your country or your officials have violated my dignity or the dignity of my people or my group or my officials. Does it change the dynamic of the conversation? It does, and although it takes a lot of work to get to the point where one would feel comfortable um, talking at that level. I mean, I have a whole process that I take parties through, uh, parties who are, you know, having having had experience, both, both sides having experienced violations of... I mean, it's always that way anyway. It's always not just one side violating and the other side being the victim. There's always mutual and reciprocal violations taking place. But most importantly, David, the, the, the work to get to that point where they feel safe enough and um, safe enough to be vulnerable, to have that kind of... It takes a long time to get there, and that's the work that I do as a facilitator in preparing them to, to feel all right and to recognize that not only is it not weak to be vulnerable, but it takes an extraordinary amount of strength to be that vulnerable. Talking with Donna Hicks, a conflict mediator associated with the Weatherhead Center at Harvard and author of Dignity. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, Dignity with Donna Hicks, please visit humanmedia.org.
Donna Hicks has formulated a list of essential elements of respecting the dignity of others. These include seeing others as neither inferior nor superior to you, paying full attention to people who voice their concerns to you, and giving others the benefit of the doubt rather than attributing bad motives at the outset. Because we would like to be treated in this way, she says, we should apply these same principles of dignity in our dealings with others. This was the message Hicks brought to a messy conflict where she was called in as a mediator. It was a uh, dialogue that I was doing in South America, and um, the conflict was um, between uh, the Ministry of Defense and the military in the country. There were such profound um, experiences of violations going back and forth. It was even in the media. It was ugly. It was mudslinging. It was, you know... It was such a painful conflict, and, and the president was concerned that if the military and the, the Ministry of Defense could not get along, that the, the security of the country was in jeopardy. So it was a very serious matter, and I was asked to go and um, do a, a session with them to try to help them um, restore their relationship again. So I'm just going to fast forward here a little bit, but I, I spent the first session talking to both of them together about dignity. I basically gave them a Dignity 101 course where they're sitting there learning about dignity together. And this is a significant piece of the, of the work because they're sitting there both learning from the point of view of what it feels like as a human being, not as somebody from one community or the other, but what because I asked people to take a, a minute and we're going to transcend ourselves into the, the level of being a human species and what, do, what, what ways do human beings react to having their dignity violated, to being assaulted in this way, in this psychological way? What are the common reactions? And I have all the, you know, I have all the research to back up these claims. And, you know, I, I do things like saying that shame is, you know, people have this tremendous shame reaction. They withdraw or they fight and they seek revenge. All things that we know about, right? But it's just that people haven't, when they hear that together and they understand that everybody is vulnerable to having their dignity violated. And we're, all, we're not bad people. We're just vulnerable people. And yet when, I mean, this has gone so awry, and I think in the human species are, are what we consider acceptable ways of treating one another is, is primitive. It's really primitive. And so I explain all of this to them. I explain everything. I explain the neuroscience behind it. And by the time they are finished with that first session where they, they are equipped now with the knowledge of what it means to be a human being and how these dignity issues are central to not only just our work relationships, but they're central to every aspect of our lives. So once they get that, they're, they're already primed to empathize more with, with one another because they're empathizing as human beings. They're not empathizing as a member of the military or a member of the Ministry of Defense. They're now recognizing that they're all in this boat together. So what happened in that case? I had them go around in a circle. They were sitting in a circle, and we all, everybody had five minutes to talk about a way in which the other side had violated their dignity. They couldn't name names. I didn't want them to name names. But they said, well, I had my identity assaulted. I, was, I wasn't included in the decision-making or I was misunderstood. So they had five minutes to have their what I call their day in court. They could talk about what happened to them. 
And I'm telling you, there's research to show that when people tell their story, that in and of itself, it's a healing process. Somebody's sitting there listening to them. They're having their experiences validated and legitimized. So every single person went around. Um, Everybody had had an experience of their many, many. I mean, we had to stop them at five minutes. A third session now was where we asked them to describe a time when they felt they had violated someone else's dignity. So there you see the significance of that. And were people just as readily able to give examples? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, because in that first session where people are talking about being violated, uh, there's something happens, David, during those moments where you hear about someone in the way they've been suffering, and they're, they're not trying to cover it up. They're just saying it. You know, they're just talking about it and reliving the experience of it. And when you tell a story that way, by sort of reliving it and telling it out loud in front of an audience, you can't help but be affected in that audience by hearing those stories. In his foreword to Donna Hicks' book, Dignity, Archbishop Desmond Tutu describes dignity as that inalienable, God-given right of all humankind. We seem somehow to have forgotten, he writes, that all beings are equal in dignity. And Tutu points out that if a person has lost their sense of dignity, it is always possible through humility to regain it. We've been talking about honoring the dignity of others. I want to take this a step deeper. What does it mean to honor one's own dignity? In other words, to act in a dignified manner. What are the challenges for us of acting with personal dignity? Well, I think our first task before anything else is really becoming comfortable with the fact that we are valuable and that we are worthy no matter what. Just being comfortable with that. And I have to tell you a story, a story that helped me understand this in a deep way. And that was when Nelson Mandela got out of Robben Island after 27 years of being imprisoned under the apartheid regime. He came out, number one, he didn't harbor any anger or hostility toward any of his white fellow South Africans. But he also told this story about when he first got there, Um, And when he first was imprisoned and he felt that he had to observe the behavior of the guards because he knew in order to survive, he had to know what the guards were up to. And the first day he recognized that what the guards tried to do was strip the dignity of the political prisoners. They tried to, you know, really make them feel worthless. And Nelson Mandela said, I was so relieved to figure that out. And I thought to myself, relieved? How could you be relieved? And and he said, because what I realized was that nobody has charge of my dignity. My dignity is in my hands alone. And I might be, somebody might assault my dignity. I might, you know, have it injured. But at the end of the day, I am the captain of my soul. And this is what the movie Invictus was about, if you you saw that. Matt Damon. Yeah, that movie that Matt Damon played, because the, the, the poem Invictus, really helped him because the last couple of lines were, I am the captain of my soul and the master of my fate or something like that. And so he really believed that. And I, 
And I say to people, because self-care and self-dignity is really the first step, because if you don't know your own sense of worth and really have that in a, in a secure place within your inner, inner world, then you're going to take stuff out, all your sense of worth, worthlessness, out on other people, just That's in that scenario I described. such a strong point. Do you see dignity as something inherent to a person that cannot actually be taken away by the actions of others? Or can someone's behavior harm the dignity of another? Well, our dignity can definitely be harmed, just like our physical bodies can be harmed, right? We can ha- we're vulnerable to having a bones broken, to being cut, being, you know, wounded in many, all different ways. In, our, in fact, you know, if you think about it, all our legal system, all our laws are based on not violating the physical space, the physical bodies of, of, of you know, people, right? But let's go back to the principle articulated by Nelson Mandela that he realized nobody can be the captain of my soul. The attempt by a guard at Robben Island in South Africa under apartheid cannot rob me of my dignity. So which is it? So, all right, two, two, I'm really glad you made this distinction because, number one, our dignity can be assaulted. We can have an injury to our dignity. It can be trampled upon. It can be wounded but it can't be taken away from us. It can't be stripped out of us. And this is what Nelson Mandela has taught us, that there is a distinction about needing to care for the wounds to our dignity. We can definitely be have it wounded, but it is never taken away because it's, it's part of who... It's in our DNA. It's our inner... It's the inner world. It's the substance of our inner world. You know, we were all born with dignity, but we were all, weren't all born knowing how to act like it. All right? We weren't born knowing how to act like it. So what are the challenges to a person who does not want to betray his own dignity? Well, you know, you go, in my book, I, I have 10 things called the 10 temptations. Number one, you don't take the bait. When somebody comes at you, don't take the bait. But, that's, but you're fighting a historical, an evolutionary legacy, that legacy to want to to protect yourself under all circumstances. So don't let the bad behavior of others govern your, your own. own behavior. Don't let, exactly, yes. And another one is, look, if you do something wrong, don't try to save face, don't lie, don't cover up, don't deceive yourself. Because, you know, at the end, and you, this almost always happens, especially with public figures, in the end, they, they, they get exposed, the truth gets exposed anyway. Eventually, the truth gets exposed, and all, and then they beg for forgiveness, right? Which is great. That's fine. But if, you, if, we, if we had charge of our dignity, we would try to control that impulse to cover up, to, to deceive ourselves, to deceive the public. So after doing this work, facilitating dialogues and thinking a lot about this and researching it and writing about it, do you feel that you have grown more sensitive to the dignity of others and that it's harder now to violate that? Oh, yeah, I, that, without a doubt. Um, I, I think what I've, what, what's grown the most in me is my um, capacity and my ability to, um, to see other people when they're in those um, feeling victimized by others. You know, I, to just recognize, I can, I can pick it up in an instant, in a nanosecond, when somebody's feeling their dignity is violated. Well, I can only hope that I, in no way have I violated your <laughs> dignity. 
during this wonderful conversation. We've been talking with Donna Hicks. She has facilitated dialogues in conflict regions from the Middle East to Northern Ireland. She's also an associate at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard. Dr. Hicks is the author of Dignity. To Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media association with WGBH Boston and Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Short Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, Dignity with Donna Hicks, is Humankind Program number 187. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.